Alright, if you will take your Bibles please, open them to the book of 1 Corinthians in the 15th chapter, and uh, if you would join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word, we come to 1 Corinthians 15 and um, verse 45, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15 beginning at verse 45. It is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For for this corruptible, excuse me, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying, which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, Where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray. God, the hope of a life beyond the grave. It is the heart of all that we teach and all that we do. The reminder that this life is more than this life. That the things of this earth should have no hold on us. That the perspectives of this earth should not influence us. That the goal of our life is to live for the glory of the risen Christ. God, I pray that you would grant us that heart. And I pray that you would remind us, Lord, that no matter what we face whether it is blessing or pain, whether it is death or imprisonment, whether it is censure or approval, God, it has its dangers for our soul. Remind us that all that we do and all that we are is to be lived unto Christ, for in Him alone is there safety and hope and promise. God, give us the grace to see what he has done for us, what he has rescued us from, and what he has given to us through his death. Give us the grace to live our lives as dead men walking, knowing that we are not in our home, but that we are certainly headed there. And we ask you for the grace to live this out. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Into the heart of life stalks the specter of death. 
We're all born with the fear of it in our breast, the knowledge of it in our souls. For many, that fear never abates. The knowledge is a pressure that cannot be avoided or alleviated. And it is into this darkness of mind and heart that the Word of God speaks most powerfully. It is into this all-consuming fear that God breathes peace into us by the power of His own sacrifice. The memorial of Easter is the restating of the eternal promise of God. The promise of redemption, of deliverance, of a restoration of the tree of life to all who are found in the Son. For it is life that we have been promised. Life everlasting. Life eternal. Life triumphant. Life determined and defined by the God of life himself. It is so much more than merely getting away from death. It is a total and complete victory over the ancient foe. It is a complete carrying away of the enemy's treasure. It is a triumph at the most fundamental level. Our victory over death is absolute because our Lord has despoiled the camp of the enemy. Now, what Paul gives us here is this picture, this contrast, this tale of two atoms. He gives to us the idea that we used to belong under the posterity of one Adam, but that if we are found in Christ, he has become for us the last Adam. He has become for us a completely new progenitor. He has become for us something more than merely a rescuer, more than merely a savior. He has become for us the everything that defines us. But it's important for us to get some perspective on that, to understand the contrast. So in order to do that, we need to look first at what the original Adam was. Paul says that he became a living being. He was of the earth. The literal Greek there says he was clayy. <laughs> clayy. I think it's a funny word, right? It's this idea that, that he was earthy. He was... He was made of the stuff of the earth. His life was about the earth. But with that came the ability to reason. He, he has a higher intellect than the mere beasts. God gave him a consciousness that he did not give to the animals. And, and man is a distinctly different kind of creature than the animals that God also made. Now, because a good design shouldn't be wasted, there are similarities and those similarities give evidence to an intentional creation rather than an accidental evolution. But Adam wasn't like the beasts of the earth. He had the ability to think and to reason and to do the task that had been set before him. And more than that, at his creation, Adam had spiritual life. He had a spirit that was able to commune with his God. He was able to walk with God and he had happiness in his work and in his calling. He was given a purpose. Before the fall, Adam had a job to do. The fall did not produce work as a curse. It produced cursed work. <laughs> okay, The fall did not introduce the idea that work had to happen. What the fall did was make work into toil. Before the fall, Adam took absolute delight in the task that was set before him to do. He took joy in fulfilling his obedience unto his father. And he had joy and happiness in that calling. He was immortal 
as a created being. In other words, his body was designed to not wear out. Now, whether it would have required him partaking of the tree of life down the road somewhere or not, we don't really know. What we know is that prior to the fall, death was not a thing. Prior to the fall, death had not entered in. That meant that no critter ate another critter, no animal killed another animal, nobody accidentally fell and died. It didn't happen. And it didn't happen because death is a consequence for sin. If you allow that death precedes sin, then death and sin are no longer connected and the death of Christ can no longer have any power over our sinful natures. This is fundamentally important that you understand. And it is because Adam, our first father, at his creation, was created to not die. But this first man, Adam, was created a living being, but became a fallen soul. He chose to deny the light of God's law and set himself up as superior to the God who created him. And in that, reason died. Only a fool would say to himself, I'm greater than the one who made me. Right? Only a fool would say to himself, God who spoke all things into being knows less than I do. Only a fool would say to himself, the God who had the power to say, let there be and there was, can be actively and effectively warred against. See, when Adam fell, reason died. And the very same lies that he told himself that led to the fall, really, are the same lies that men still believe today. He lost the ability to commune with his God because the death that entered into life was firstly the reality of physical death. It would come upon all. Everything changed. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that creation was subjected to futility because of Adam's sin. But more importantly than that, in the very moment that Adam sinned, his relationship with God was severed. He died spiritually. The part of him that was able to commune with God ceased to exist. And from that moment, the spiritual life of earthly creation died and never was restored until the coming of Christ. Every single one of us, according to Ephesians chapter 2, is born spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that nobody seeks after God, that nobody does what is right, that nobody has anything in them that even hungers for God in the slightest bit. This is a result of Adam's fall. This is a result of the spiritual reality of who he was being slain by his action. And since the father... God who created him is the source of all good things and Adam could no longer commune with him. His joy and happiness in obeying the Father and doing the work that was set out before him also took a hit. And in that moment, his happiness died. And in that moment, everything that he desired, his joy, his peace, it all ended. But most poignant is the fact that into creation, physical death passed. And thus a life intended to be forever became instead a living death. There was nothing left in him that could be called life. There was a mechanical process 
but life itself had ceased to be. Adam died. And in that, he also became an empty progenitor. He had nothing to pass on to his posterity. He gave us only the death that ruled him. You cannot bring life from death. You cannot bring two dead things together and expect life to come. It doesn't happen. And no amount of dead logic can convince a dead man to do something that he's not able to do. It doesn't happen. It can't happen. There has to be something from outside of us because Adam passed on to us only death. He had no spirit to bestow. He had no happiness or joy to communicate and he set us up for a life of quiet misery and desperation. And if you engage with people, if you talk to people, people who do not know Christ, people who have not been born again, even the happiest among them, there is at the core of their being this life of quiet desperation. This life of, there, there has to be something more. There has to be something else. There has to be a reason for this, which is why they run from one passionate pursuit of pleasure to another, to another, to another. Because when you grasp the thing that you've sought for and find that it's empty, what else is there for you but to look for the next thing? Pay attention to how quickly people's passions change and warp and and transfer from one thing to another, from one person to another, from one pleasure to another, from one pursuit to another. This is indicative of spiritual deadness. This is indicative of the fact that there is nothing in them which can ever be satisfied with anything that is. Because in the end, death now haunts our dreams. And our own passing cements it into the mind of our children that death is stalking them as well. This is the posterity of Adam. This is what the first Adam gave to us. He gave to us a life, earthy, (laughs) cemented to this world and passing away in the same way that this world is. And if that is all our life is, then the span of a man's years might be 30 and 10, 40 and 10, 50 and 10. A man might live to 100. But consider this truth. The scripture reminds us that after we're gone, even the earth forgets our place. Drive around. Look at the old farms. Look at the old places where people lived and families once dwelt. If there's anything left, it's hollow, it's empty. Give it another hundred years and you'll never be able to tell it was there. Except for the irises, they seem to last forever. This is, the, this is the gift of your first father, Adam. It is death. It is a living death. And it is a living death which you are powerless to do anything about. You have no ability. You have no desire. You have no willingness that you should seek him. Instead, you sought only for yourself. And you found it empty. Which is why God graciously, generously, 
gives to us not only the first Adam, but he gave to us the last Adam. What does Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians 15? Look back with me a little bit, please. The first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, this is not actually something that Paul invented, the reference to Messiah as the last Adam. This was a Jewish thought. This was something that they were expecting the Messiah to be the last Adam. They were expecting to be restored to some relationship with God. They, they, they had this in their lore. They had this in their teaching. They, the, the, the rulers would communicate this, but they didn't understand it. Why? Well, because they were dead. <laughs> because their spirits were dead. Their minds were darkened. Everything about them, even though they were religious and they were trying to do their best to be super good at what they were doing, the part that made the connection didn't exist. Paul reminds us and reminds them that the last Adam became a life-giving spirit, which contrasts exactly with the first Adam, right? The first Adam was only able to pass on death to his posterity. But the last Adam communicates life unto dead hearts. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, please. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1, Paul writes this, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature... Notice that. We're, by nature, children of wrath, just as the others. But God, great words, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He communicated life unto dead hearts. We are made alive in Christ. What you were, if you are found in Christ, is no longer what you are. You are now something alive. You used to look alive. You used to think you were alive. You used to act alive. But now in Christ, you have been made alive. The spirit that was dead, that could no longer commune with your God, has been given to you. And with that, he is able to restore to you some semblance of reason and spiritual understanding. If we lost life in Adam and we lost our ability to reason and understand spiritually, then if Christ makes us new, then that also must be restored. Turn back again to 1 Corinthians, but now in chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting at verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. 
nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. You've been given the ability to understand spiritual things. You've been given the ability to know, to reason, to put truth together with truth. You've been given something that if you'll think back to your own conversion, should strike you with some startling clarity. There is this transformational reality wherein somebody will say to me, and I've heard this before, Graham said this about a year ago when he got saved. He said, after I got saved, you got really interesting. Right? The, the idea was that he used to hear, but he didn't hear. He used to read, but he didn't understand. He tried, but he couldn't do it. There, there had to be something dynamically transformative in what was going on inside of him, and that comes from Jesus. It only comes from Jesus. It is the Spirit of God in doing dead flesh with living spirit, and we've been given through that the ability to reason, the ability to understand, the ability to think accurately. And we have been given joy, which is disconnected by circumstance. Joy as the fruit of the Spirit. Remember the fruit of the Spirit is love, what? Joy, peace, right? Those very things that were taken away from us by Adam's fall have been given to us in the gift of the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us. They have been given to us by the God who made us His own. Joy is the promised possession of the child of God. If Adam could only communicate to his children a quiet desperation, a life devoid of hope, a life devoid of anything but affliction and misery and sorrow, then what does Jesus bring to us? Look at Psalm 119, verse 50. Psalm 119 and verse 50. The psalmist writes, This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. So connected to your ability to understand truth is the comfort that comes from truth being revealed to your heart. It is something that's powerful. It's something that's true. It's something that is deep. And it's something that comes to us because God has changed what was given to us by our first father, Adam. He has taken everything that we lost in Adam and he has turned it on its ear and given it back to us. So as Adam rebelled against God and severed the relationship with God by his actions, then part of what happens to us is God restores us to a right relationship. He calls the wandering soul back. Look at Hosea chapter 14. Hosea chapter 14 and verse 4 says, I will heal their backsliding and I will love them freely for my anger has turned away from him. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall grow like the lily and strengthen his roots like Lebanon. His branches shall spread. His beauty shall be like an olive tree. 
and his fragrance shall be like, like Lebanon. Those who dwell under his shadow shall return, and they shall be revived like grain. They grow like a vine. Their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. He will bring his wandering child home. And as the victor over death, the inheritance that we had from our father Adam, the death that was introduced into all of creation, Christ is the Lord of life. He has given to us his own life. Look at Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 and verse 13, we find these words. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you now see and know. And the faith that comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Or Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, beginning at verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So the the second Adam, the last Adam, gave back to us everything that had been stripped from us by the first Adam's fall. And more than just giving it back in some way that it could be lost again, he gives it back to us in a way that is secured and sealed by his own blood, by his own death, by his own resurrection. And it is given to us in such a fashion that we can never lose it because it is more than it ever was at the beginning. He has given to us what was taken and then some. He has turned it around and restored it in its fullness. And in the end, understand that Jesus, as the second Adam, where the first Adam was a rebellious son, Jesus is an obedient son. He fulfilled the whole law of God, submitting himself to the God of all things with willingness. In Philippians chapter 2, we're reminded that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But instead, he made himself of no reputation setting aside his glory, setting aside his throne, and became obedient even to the point of death, even the death of a cross. He obeyed what the Father gave to him. And we have the commendation of God upon his life. He walked with God all the days of his life. And even now, according to Hebrews, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And when he was walking on the earth, and his disciples were kind of paying attention, kind of not paying attention... How many times did God speak from heaven and say something like, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Be quiet and listen to Him. Right? 
You see, Jesus restores a relationship with God and he demonstrates to us what it is to walk in obedience before him. And he did it for the joy that was set before him. So if Adam lost our joy, Christ gives to us a purpose for joy that endures even in the midst of suffering and pain. Hebrews chapter 12 says, to set our eyes upon the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. The literal language there says, shamed the shame. He endured the worst that the world could give. He endured the wrath of God for sin. And he endured all of that for the hope of the joy that was set before him. And in the hope of the joy that was set before him, we find in him a reason to live. We find in him a reason to live in this life with our eyes fixed elsewhere. Never mind what threatens us. Never mind even if death itself threatens. Because the truth is, though we have been given life and we have been given a life beyond this life, death will still physically touch all of us unless Christ returns sooner. Okay, But it doesn't affect us in any way that is final. Because Christ carried captivity captive. He carried death captive in His train. Ephesians 4.8 says, Therefore He says, when He ascended on high, He led captivity captive and He gave gifts to men. It was the work of Christ to destroy the power of death over his people, to destroy the power of sin over his people. It was the work of Christ to make us fully and completely belong to God so that God, according to Ephesians chapter 3, is vindicating himself and demonstrating the wisdom of his own plan as it is worked out among the heavenlies. He's showing everybody that's watching how good and perfect and excellent his plan was. He is a full and generous elder brother. If he had a right relationship with God, he restored us to that relationship. In John 14, he reminds us that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will return again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. So not only do we have a relationship with God that allows us to walk with him here, but we have the promise of an eternal home with our father with our elder brother Jesus, with the one who bought us and made us his own. And he has shared with us not only the promise of his future home, but he has shared with us the fullness of his own inheritance. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 14. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 14, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. You know, we, we tell the story of the prodigal son. And we, 
occasionally will tell the end of the story where the elder brother looks at the younger brother and says, you know, why, why are you throwing a party over him? I've been here. I've been faithful. I've done everything that I'm supposed to do. And, and he's gone out. He's squandered all your money. He's lived like a reckless fool. And now he comes back and, and you're going to throw him a party and you've never even told me good job and given me a kid that I could celebrate with my friends. I don't understand this issue, Dad. We, we tell that parable, and we very seldom consider that that is exactly the opposite of how our elder brother acts and thinks. Right? You see, the inheritance that is given to us in Christ is Christ's inheritance, and he willingly shares it with his people. He willingly gives it to us. He does not grudgingly give it to us, right? There is is such joy in the thought that what is handed to us in Christ is willingly handed to us by God the Father and by the Son who is sharing His own inheritance with His people. This is His joy to do this in us. And we must consider this carefully. Because in the end, the final thing that he gives to us is a promise of deliverance out of and from death. In other words, death will touch every single one of us. But it does not have the final say any longer. This is the heart of what Paul is driving at in this whole conversation about two Adams. Because the only inheritance of a once-born worldling is death and hell. It makes no difference how good a man lives his life. It makes no difference how religious, how faithful, how intentional, how purposeful, how determined he is to live a good life. If he is spiritually dead, if he is only born once, if he is just the child of Adam, then the only hope that he has is that he would die and that he would face judgment and that he would spend eternity in hell. There is nothing else in front of him. But for those of us in Christ, death, though it comes, though it pinches momentarily, it is just a transition. It is just a step from here to there. It is nothing more than a door that leads us from this incomplete and imperfect life into the presence of our God. It has no power over us. It has no power to touch anything that actually matters. It has no power to to harm us in any way that is real. It can only touch our flesh. It can only touch that which is already going. Because in the end, triumph over death is, is not as the world would consider triumph over death. Right? It's not to die a mindless beast. Animals die... When they die, they're gone. They have no consciousness. They have no eternal thinking about anything. They they don't contemplate their own mortality. They don't contemplate their own death. It's part of what it is to be made a man versus a beast. Well, victory over death is not a return to that sort of animal state where you can just live and die and go your way. Because death is not eradication. Death is not annihilation. 
Victory over death is not the victory that would be seen by um, dying as a skeptic who doesn't believe in anything, who just believes that this life is all there is, live the best you can, and then in the end when death comes, you just die and that's all. It's not to die as a stoic who says, yes, death is a great evil, but I will endure this great evil as I have endured all other great evils. I will grit my teeth and bear it. I have a great appreciation for much of Stoic philosophy, but their perspective on death, it's not triumphant. What is it to be victorious over death? It is to turn what is intended by your enemy as a harm, as a curse, as a wounding. It is to turn that into something desirable and victorious. It is to take that which was intended by someone to hurt you and let it become something that actually blesses you. To have victory over death is to recognize the truth that death no longer has any power over you. It is understanding what it is to die, what death brings us into, and what it means for death to destroy our bodies, but to be completely unable to touch anything that actually matters. To have victory over death is to recognize that you live beyond this moment. This is what Paul is pressing in the last part of 1 Corinthians 15. Corruption cannot inherit incorruption. You have to be changed. You have to be transformed. You have to become something other than what you are. And death's only power over you is that separation from this life which binds you here. It is to separate you from the physical body which anchors you to this world and to release that which is actually you into the presence of God. Death is nothing more than the quick snip of the subtle knife. It is nothing more than an end here which was going to end anyway and a transition to there. So our thinking about death needs to be transformed according to Scripture. It is to have a scripturally based understanding and confidence that death does not have any real power over you. Because, as Paul points out, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. Right? Well, has Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf? Amen, he has. And if he has fulfilled the law on our behalf, then the law has no hold to condemn you. It has been satisfied. This is what God tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21. That God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what happens when the law is satisfied on your account. If you pay off your mortgage, the bank cannot come and take your house. Only the government can do that. Right? If you pay off the note, that law has no more power to harm you or hurt you. In fact, if you pay off your mortgage, there's not even anybody that can tell you you have to have insurance. Right? It's not required by any law, any place, except the law of the lender that says, I own your house, you don't. Beloved, when the law has been satisfied on your behalf, it has no power over you. And Christ satisfied the law. Amen. He satisfied it. He paid it. 
He did everything the law required. And in his satisfaction of the law, the sting of sin, the power and the strength of it to harm you has been taken away completely. It has been removed from the experience of death. Beloved, hear me. If you are in Christ, the only harm your death brings is to those who cannot see you any longer. And even then, it's a temporary thing. Amen? Amen. The only harm is for those who remain. But even that, we're told, endures just for a moment. Weeping lasts for the night. Joy comes in the morning. We, we have nothing to fear from the presence of death. What the scripture tells us is that in this, we are to be joyfully assured that to live is Christ and to die is gain. All right? This was the entire discussion that Paul was having with the Philippian church when he made that statement. He said, I don't know whether I'm going to die or not. It's up to God. It's better for me that I go, (laughs) but it's better for you that I stay. And clearly at that point in history, God chose to give what was better to the Philippians and not to Paul. But what's remarkable about it is that although he understood that dynamic, He was okay with either direction. He was okay going. He was okay staying. He was okay recognizing that there is a reason to be here and to continue to labor for the sake of the king. Or, by the same token, his work has been accomplished and he can go home and see the king. Whichever way it falls out, in the end, you're going to see the king whether it's today or tomorrow or 10 years or 20 years or 100 years for somebody in this room maybe. We're going to see Jesus when it's all said and done. And if that's what death does to us, then the defeat that we see death as is truly a victory. There is victory in that seeming defeat, right? What was it that had the disciples so downcast, so, so terrified? They, they had placed their trust, placed their faith, placed their hope in this man, Jesus. They believed he was the Messiah. They just didn't understand what it meant for him to be Messiah. He had tried to tell them, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. Three days after they kill me, I'm going to rise again. They didn't hear any of that. And so when Jesus was taken, they kept expecting him to do as he'd done before, to slip out through the crowds, to just suddenly not be able to be held on to. There's so many places where the Pharisees tried to lay hands on him, but it wasn't his time. They expected Jesus to to do another magic disappearing trick. They expected him to go walk on water. They expected him to do something magnificent so that he would not be taken. But instead of that, what they saw was one of their own betray him and Jesus offered no resistance at all. In fact, Jesus instructed Peter, 
put away your sword. And then he took the ear of the high priest's servant and healed it after Peter went to all the trouble to cut it off. They didn't understand anything that was going on. And when Jesus died, so did their world. When Jesus died, so did their hope. When Jesus died, so did everything that was in them. It's no wonder that we find them on Easter morning hiding in the upper room. Not believing when the women come and say, he's, he's, he's alive, I've seen him. It should be no surprise to us because honestly, how do we translate the truth of God in this victorious defeat when life doesn't go the way we want it to today, this side of Calvary, with all of the information laid out in front of us? How do we process it? How do we get it? Truthfully, we don't. We should, but we don't. Because in the end, what we see in the death of Christ is this victorious defeat. Death no longer has any power to separate us from God. Though you die, sin has no hold over you. It's already been punished. The law has already been fulfilled. The law and the grave have lost their sting. And in the end, the resurrection of Jesus stands as proof and evidence, according to Paul in Romans chapter 4, it stands as evidence that you have been justified. Romans 4.24 says that he was raised because of our justification. What does that mean? It means that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the shout of victory from heaven, that God has accepted the sacrifice in our place. There is no question, there is no possibility of misunderstanding what the resurrection of Jesus means if you look at it with your eyes open. It means God has looked at His death and said, I will count it as yours. And I will grant to you the life that I'm giving back to Him. And I will give to you acceptance in my sight and everything that has been taken from you, I give back. Which means that we have the challenge in front of us to walk in this triumphant, victorious defeat. Right? We have the challenge placed in front of us to live this out. To be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. To put that on like the armor of God daily. To know that we are found in Him. Not to look to your own works, not to look to your own righteousness, not to look to your name on some church membership role, not to look to the day that you were baptized or anything else, but to look to the fact that Christ dwells in you. Christ in you, according to Colossians, is the hope of glory. Not anything else. And so when you're talking to somebody and you ask them the question, do you believe in Christ? Are you saved? And they tell you, well, I've always believed in Christ. I've always been a saved man. I've always been a Christian. You know right away they don't understand. 
you know right away there's something broken in their understanding of the world. Because in the end, what matters is Christ in us. And that's not something you do. That's something He does. Amen. Christ in you is the hope of glory. And we must stand ready to abandon all that this world holds over us. What is it that this world has? It has only things that are connected to this world. Most of them aren't worth your time, but some of them aren't bad. But even the good things that are found in this life, they are very physical, very visceral, very connected only to this life. And so often when you give them your full heart's affection, they only serve to bind you here and limit your understanding of what God is doing in your life. You must stand ready to abandon everything that is only here. And follow Him wherever. We must live as close to God and communing with Him as is possible. For in Him is all peace, all knowledge, all power, all hope. If you're going to walk in this victorious defeat, you're going to need to recognize that what Jesus purchased for you is a life beyond the grave. And the wonder of it is that the life beyond the grave that He promises to you is a life that you can begin to live right now. Because there is a way in which you can live out this life with your eyes steadfastly fixed on glory. And there's a way in which you can begin to live out this life in a way that is transformative in this world. You want to know what the problem with our community is? The problem with our culture? The problem with our nation? It's our churches. It's the people who name the name of Jesus refusing to live like people who name the name of Jesus and instead committing themselves to petty arguments over things that don't matter, committing themselves to living for their own pleasure, committing themselves to live out this life according to their own desires instead of committing themselves to follow after Christ with the fullness of their hearts. And when that's our perspective, we lose all spiritual power, we lose all ability to have any impact whatsoever, And our lives look exactly like the lives of the world. And beloved, more often than not, that is evidenced by how Christians respond to death. Right? Because we don't have any more hope than the world does. Because we don't live that way. We don't think that way. We don't aim ourselves that way. The problem with our nation is us. But God in His mercy calls us to repentance. And God in His mercy calls us to walk in a way that displays Him. And God in His mercy does more than call us. He empowers us. He challenges us to face the darkness with hope. Let's be honest with ourselves. For some who name the name of Christ, the idea of death is so overpowering and so overwhelming that the doubt that they live with all the time about their own soul, the doubt that they live with all the time about their own existence, about their own acceptance in the sight of God because maybe they've rooted it somewhere else. or well, I don't know what the reasons are. There's, there's too many to name. That doubt is very real for some people. 
And for some people, they're going to enter into death still doubting. And it's not until God says, it's okay, your mind, come in, that that doubt is finally going to be removed. For some, well, we need to recognize that those who are weak in that way need to be encouraged, need to be loved, need to be taught, need to be shored up. One way that we can do that is by checking our own lives and making sure that we're living out faithfully the reality that praising his name in whatever is going on is the aim and the challenge to us all. That means when when bad things happen, when death invades, and, and it doesn't mean that a person died. Maybe a dream died. Maybe a hope died. Maybe a circumstance died. Maybe things are just not the way you want them to be. And that can feel like a death to you. How do you deal with it? How do you respond to it? How do you live out Christ in the midst of your circumstances? Because if you're not aiming at doing that, I promise you, you're not doing it. If you're not aiming at recognizing that God is sovereign over your world, sovereign over your life, and that your life is exactly the way He intends it to be right now, every single thing in your life in this moment is a gift from God to do something in you. Okay? Every part of it. Even the parts that you wish you could be rid of. They're all a gift from God. And it requires us to recognize some hope and to give Him praise. Triumphant shouts of worship should be the focus and the desire of our heart. We need to be rethinking how we speak to others and how we speak to ourselves about the things that are invading our lives. Because if what we're communicating to the world is the same hopelessness that they live with, then just stop talking. Okay? If what we're communicating to the world is that they're right about everything's terrible and and there's no hope in anything, if that's what we're telling them, then we just need to be quiet. Because that is not on point for what a Christian is supposed to be living We need to recognize the fact that God has given us this moment as an opportunity to display the gospel. And no matter how we actually face not only our disappointments but our death, we must know that we are found in Christ. Look, here's the truth. Even if you're surrounded by your loved ones, everybody dies alone. Okay? Everybody dies alone. You're going to walk through that door all by yourself. Or so it seems, until you recognize that Christ is with you. Amen. You see, you're not ever really alone. For the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you if you belong to Christ. And that transforms our perspective on everything that we do. It transforms our our hopes. It transforms our dreams. It transforms our lives. It transforms our purpose and it transforms our focus. And if we can recognize this in the hardest parts of life, then we have a better chance of recognizing it 
in the parts that are not so hard. I know, whatever you're facing, it's the hardest thing of all. I get it, I understand. (laughs) We all feel that way about our own sorrows. We all feel that way about our own pains. We all feel that way about our own disappointments. We all feel that way. But I would challenge us all that if we can get a perspective on death that is informed by Scripture to remind us that even the worst thing possible is not the worst thing at all, then it just might make this worst thing that you're facing be a little more manageable. Amen. And if it is, then your testimony just might be a little more believable. Amen? Beloved, here's the truth. Christ is risen. And that changes everything. It transforms every single part of this life. And if we don't get that, how in the world are they going to? We have to know this. We have to know this in our bones. We have to live this out. Christ is risen. It's not just an Easter thing. It's, it's an all day, all eternity, all a forever thing. Christ is risen. And that shapes and changes every single part of our lives. So go forth in the power of the gospel. Declare the risen Savior. Proclaim not only his death, but his life until he comes again. Live this out and see what glory God brings. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day. And I pray, Lord, that you would remind us that whatever we face is no surprise to you. Help us understand that whatever it is that we're dealing with, you planned. And help us know that what you plan, you plan for our good. God, even something as dark as death carries in it the seeds of hope, the seeds of promise, the seeds of greatness. Help us understand it. In Jesus' name, amen.